Welcome back to True Crime Trine. It's a podcast where the planets align. Got it. And Woo. three friends <laughs> chat about true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we can fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. I drank way too strong of coffee today. I've been having wine. I'm drinking cocktails again. We might all be at different energies. Yeah, I've found out that, you know, grading does come easier with a bottle of wine. (laughs) I care a little less. Yeah. (laughs) About teaching the youth. I mean, after a certain point, like, they're not going to read all my comments. They're not. Especially especially this one, the last one of the the, the season. (laughs) Of the season, yeah. They're not going to learn from this one. They just want their final grade to be, you know, able to go and have Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> I know, and I wasn't even going to, like, actually really grade their last entry visa because it was basically just doing flowcharts for the biochemical practical. So I'm like, we're doing the practical, too. You'll get the points. But then another TA, Brittany, being a big old hard ass, and we got a whole email about it. And now I think <sighs> they're expecting us to read them. And I was like, god damn it. No. <laughs> just let me give them the tenor. Or the fiver. I think it's only worth five points. So let me not give them ten. <laughs> but... Do any of them know that you have this podcast? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I... If they like saw your sticker or something and like started listening in, and now they're like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, I think I said it a bunch of times. Like, they all got tens on this biochemical practical. I'm like, just show up with your camera on and you'll basically get the ten points. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And they that poster due next Monday. I'm like, I'm gonna open it up and i'm gonna close it and i'm gonna give you 10 points like i'm gonna open it up move it to a new file and move on yeah <laughs> uh those are just like cushion points but anywho welcome back off the grading tangent this is <laughs> episode 36 our gift <laughs> to you listeners christmas, christmas. My voice is cracky now. What is <laughs> happening? Like, I don't know why you picked that song. That's a hard. That's a hard one. <laughs> yeah. And that is all, folks. <laughs> Merry Christmas. No, just Did you enjoy that. Goodbye. It was so Hope good. Hope you enjoyed this. What is it? The Transylvanian Orchestra thing, right? Oh yeah, Transylvania. <laughs> Trans-Siberian. <laughs> I thought you were right, though, Sarah. I didn't even question it. <laughs> that was good. Oh, that might be one of my favorite fuck-ups. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally down for it, so. I'm trying to think of, like, a, a Dracula voice, too, for, like, Christmas. Like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Let me suck your blood. <laughs> or I'll Merry give Christmas. you blood. For Christmas. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's Christmas, folks. Dear listeners, have you heard of Christmas? And, uh, how many fucking crimes take place on Christmas? This has been, mm. a, I'm pretty sure this is our most crime-filled holiday yet. Yeah, it was shocking how many stories are out there for Christmas. Even more if you count all 12 days of Yule. Right? 
Oh, I didn't even look at Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was hard to choose, but we each brought you a little shorty. Each of us brought you our own little story of a Christmas crime. And seems like there'll be more than enough for us to do this again next year. Oh, yeah. And I will—I always forget that John Bonet Ramsey is a Christmas murder. It yeah. is, yeah. Maybe I'll put a pin in that and just do a long form on that in December. Anywho, we didn't do John Bonet Ramsey, but there's we're so many other options. We've got some good stuff for you, folks. We got a doozy. I have a song for you at the end. Aww. A song? I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to send you to the Spotify, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> Unless you want us to do Transvanian Orchestra meows again. <laughs> Maybe that one should be bats. Should be bat screeches if it's Transylvanian. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Is that what a bat sounds like? Sure. Tonight, that's what a bat sounds like. It just is like a hot, it's a chirp, I guess. Yeah. Who wants to go first? I'm full of energy. You want me to go first? <laughs> sure. I have one that's actually Christmas Eve. Oh, okay. okay. Then, yeah. Mine goes over multiple days of the Christmas season, so. Okay. Mine is Christmas Day. Okay. We can start off with Eve. Okay. Mine actually starts out on the 22nd. Oh, well then. So we want to do this chronologically, December. Or we could do it by the year the crime <laughs> happened. 2008. Oh. Okay, mine is like 1987 or 5. Mine is 1929. Whoa! I know, you got the old one. I <laughs> I was so torn. I almost did that one. So we're going to start. The oldest or the newest? Have we gotten more or less depraved? Oh, jeez. This one's... I don't know. Mine's bad. Yours is bad. I like, yeah. I don't that know is what Sarah's bad. is, but she sent us the emoji of the Santa, the Christmas tree, and a uh, fire so i don't think it's gonna be very good nope and mine is the hillbilly from hell (laughs) oh no man we're just full of the spirit it's very fitting but there's a siren happening right now oh different mating call (laughs) you know i was gonna say it's not the the other guy he's busy finals week or he's christmas shopping Mm. or he moved away because he was failing because he was out leave. on a weeknight all the time, just zooming around, not paying attention to his homework. <laughs> That's fair, too. But I was going to think, he's going to leave a, a muffler on your porch, like a, like a dead rat. Like a oh, present for no. <laughs> no, no. Put like no. a muffler. A <laughs> muffler. He doesn't have a muffler. That's the it's, problem. It's like really beat up and falling apart. He ripped it off his car to show okay. you how much he loves you. They're not even Kirk this whole time. <laughs> not super paid, no. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't help anything. Who wants to go first? <laughs> uh, I can go. It. I don't know. Okay. Or if we want to do Christmas, and it's not like past, future, and present, but you know. <gasps> oh. Because that's a theme. It is this a theme. is this one is kind of present, but uh, there's no future. There's no future because we're not going to predict the crimes that we're going to do next Christmas. Oh, I'm guessing that there's going to be a murder. I'd guess that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or uh, a robbery by someone wearing a Santa suit. Oh yes, or drunken disorderly in a Santa suit. Oh yeah, 
I also had a mini story regarding one of those, but I don't know if we're going to have room for it. All right. Well, I, at 1929, I will go first. Cool. How about that? Sounds good. Okay. So this is the story of the murder of the Lawson family. So I'm bringing you, for Christmas, a family annihilator. Oh my God, so am I. Whoa. So, kind of so am I. Oh, 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 Christmas is a rough holiday, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, for sure. So this is in Germantown, North Carolina, 1929. But we're going to take a little bit of a step back and we're going to give you some background on Charles Davis Lawson, or Charlie, as he preferred. He was born on May 10th of 1886, so he is a Taurus. He grew up with his younger brothers, Marion and Elijah, in Lawsonville, North Carolina, and his parents, Augustus and Nancy, were sharecroppers. I had to look up what a sharecropper was because I did not know. So essentially sharecropping is when you lease a small parcel of land and then you grow and tend to the crops, but you only receive a portion of the value of the crops and then you pay the rest to the landowner for the seeds, the tools, and sometimes even living quarters. Let's just say that the Lawson family, they were poor. I don't think a sharecropper ever really hits the big time. Yeah. So in 1911, Charlie married Fanny Manning. I was say Fanny Manning. <laughs> <laughs> I almost did. <sighs> Their first child, Marie, was born the following year in 1912, followed by Arthur in 1913, William in 1914, and Carrie in 1917. By Gosh. 1918, the Lawson family moved 21 miles north to Germantown to be closer to Charlie's brothers. Sadly, little William passed away in 1920 from an illness. Mm-hmm. It didn't say what he died of, but... Influenza. It, it could have been, yeah. So Charlie and Fanny continued to grow their family, and they welcomed Maybell in 1922, James in 1925, Raymond in 1927, and lastly, Mary Lou in 1929. These are very quaint names. Yes. And this is a lot of children. Yeah. A lot. I had said ouch earlier, and I'm like, (laughs) oh, I was like, (laughs) now I'm going really ouch. That was Fanny's vagina speaking. (laughs) Yes, it was. So, following in his parents' footsteps, Charlie leased some land and he was a tobacco farmer. The family worked really hard to save their money, and in 1927, they were able to purchase this rundown farm off Brook Cove Road, and it was not too far away from Marion and Elijah's farms. So, Charlie seemed to be a devoted father to his seven children, maybe a little bit more strict than some. But he is a Taurus, so... And it was like the 1920s. You're like, you are farm labor. Basically, yeah. My youths. So a few days before Christmas, Charlie took them into town to buy all new clothes, and then the family was set to take their first family photo. Oh, It seems like a really nice thing to do, right? Yeah. However. <laughs> However. <laughs> but... <laughs> This would be the only family photo that was ever taken. This seemingly serene moment was about to get dark. 
much like the haunting black and white image of the Lawson family that was captured that day. And it is fucking creepy. I'm putting it on the website. Mm-hmm. It's going to look like a class photo with all those kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, one from every class. <laughs> right, but like volume of human bodies oh, yeah. in the photo. Mm-hmm. Basketball team. <laughs> According to one source, and you guys are going to love this, it was a Criminal Minds wiki page. Yay. On Christmas Day, Charlie and Arthur, and Arthur is the oldest son but the second oldest child, they went hunting. When they ran out of bullets, or so Arthur thought, Charlie sent Arthur to town to purchase some more ammunition. And once Arthur had left the farm, the horror would begin. It does sound like they're really bad hunters. Yes, it does. You only get to hit like one deer. Right? How many bullets do you need? So, Marie, 17, the eldest Lawson child, was in the kitchen and had finished baking a cake for the family to enjoy during their Christmas festivities. Carrie, who was 12, and Mabel, who was 7, were getting ready to leave to go visit their aunt and uncle. Carrie and Mabel walked from the house down past the tobacco barn. Unbeknownst to them, their father, Charlie, was watching them. When the girls were in range... Charlie shot both of the girls with a 12-gauge shotgun. No. Mm-hmm. Oh. To ensure that they died, Charlie then bludgeoned the girls with the butt of his gun. As if the 12-gauge wasn't going to tear them apart anyway. For these tiny little oh, girls. He then dragged their bodies into the barn and then headed for the house. Fanny was on the front porch when Charlie shot her. Marie, who was in the kitchen, screamed... And the two youngest boys, James 4 and Raymond 2, ran to hide from their father. When Charlie entered the house, he shot Marie, and then he went looking for the boys. Some reports say that Charlie shot the boys, while others say he beat them to death in the living room. Either way, Charlie murdered his two sons. And I don't know why I end up always having cases with children in them. But anyways, in the living room, four-month-old Mary Lou laid in her crib, and she would be Charlie's final victim. Oh. It was reported that Charlie arranged each body by crossing their arms over their chest and then placing a pillow for the ones in the house or a rock for the girls in the barn under their heads. And then he fled to the woods. Just bring a pillow out at the very least. Oh, wow. <laughs> no. Morris Hello. is upset. Uh-oh. At Charlie. Yes. Damn it, Charlie. Damn it, Charlie. Rooting Christmas. Mm-hmm. This this whole baby, like the four-month-old baby thing is really sensitive to me right now because I just watched The Nightingale. Oh. I had not watched oh, that. that. It's not a feel-good film. It's not a good mm-hmm. revenge story. It it just is upsetting and gruesome and very graphic. I was like shaking with rage and wanted to jump through the screen and do terrible things to these men. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> I've never heard of it. I'm going to stay oblivious. Mm-hmm. I heard about it. Someone was telling me about it. And I'm like, nope. I can't imagine being a mother and having seen any of that. Mm-mm. No, there's a couple other like crime documentaries out there that I've been warned off of due to, you know, animals or, or small children. And I'm like, yep, I'm just not going to go there. I'll never watch Don't Fuck With Cats. Yeah, me neither. So back to Charlie, unfortunately. 
There are some articles that say that Arthur and his cousin were the ones who found the bodies. Some other articles say that it was one of Charlie's brothers who had stopped by with his wife to wish the family a Merry Christmas. Either way, no one could have been prepared for this grisly scene. The police were called and the rumors started swirling around the town. An officer came down to the farm as well as many curious neighbors. However, they didn't enter the house like Uh. they did in Villisca. But where was Charlie? A few hours later, a gunshot rang out in the woods near the farm. When the police officer went to investigate, he found Charlie dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Footprints were found circling the tree nearest Charlie's body. It was thought that he spent those hours out there after the murders kind of pacing around the trees. The officer would then find two partial notes, and this was a little weird. The first one said, quote, nobody to blame but, end quote. And then the second said, quote, trouble will cause, end quote. Okay. So many surmise that these were Charlie's attempts at suicide notes, but maybe he just didn't have the words, right? He just killed his entire family. Well, except for Arthur. Yeah, which is enough. Mm-hmm. And no one knows why Arthur was spared from this tragedy. Perhaps he was his father's favorite. He was the oldest son. No one knows. Mm, and He wanted his like family line to go on. And that's a thing, too, for uh, for some families. You know, they want those mm-hmm. their lineage to continue. Not that anyone needed Charlie's lin- lineage to continue. However, tragedy would strike again in 1945 when Arthur was 32 years old. He was killed in a car accident, leaving behind his wife and four to five children. We don't know because some article said four, some article said five. Anyways, he had a lot of kids. He did get all oh, the lineage banged- was continued. He banged a lot out in the time that he could. Mm-hmm. So the big question here is obviously why? Why did Charlie murder his family? A lot of the theory was that several months before the murder, Charlie had sustained a substantial head injury. So many people thought Mm -hmm. that maybe this injury had damaged Charlie's brain, causing him to become psychotic. However, his autopsy and the analysis of his brain found no evidence to support that theory. So even though it was a substantial head wound... I would say, though, we can barely tell what's happening with the brain now. Yeah, True. without an active scan, it's really weird to know what's actually changing. Yeah. If, like, if you just cut open someone's head and look at their brain, like, it, it you're not going like to find, like, massive holes in it, you know? Unless you Swiss have cheese. Swiss cheese disease, but... Yeah, well, but not all behavioral changes are brought on by something that dr- dramatic. No, mm-hmm. and, like, just a bang on the head or something. Like, a lot of the times you can't see anything, like, anatomically obvious. Mm-hmm. Especially macroscopically with the brain. One of Charlie's brothers decided to open the house up as kind of a tourist destination afterwards. He charged 25, I think 25 cents a head to come kind of like walk through the house and they left. And this really was a dilapidated type house. And I have a picture of that that we can post on the website as well. But they left the house like as is. So he was charging people to like come in and tour the house. And the reason why I mentioned the fact that Marie had baked the cake is because the cake never was eaten. So it was there. And it did have raisins on it. (laughs) And people started to steal the raisins so they ended up then try like putting it in a glass case where it was for quite a while 
Yeah, how long can a cake just sit out? Right? And then I was like, well, it was it a fruit cake? But it, it evidently was not a fruit cake. It was just kind of a holiday cake that had raisins on it. So I don't know how long they typically last, but the attraction, if you will, was there for quite some time. So thank you, Charlie's brother. Honestly, Char- well, actually, I probably would have asked Arthur is the one who could have decided, but it does sound like they were a very poor family. And it was also the Depression. So mm-hmm. get that change. Yes. Again, many people thought it was this head injury. But years and years and years later, in 1990, M. Bruce Jones released his book called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas. Finally, the true story of the Lawson family murders on Christmas Day. Finally, sir. Finally. Where have you been? Is he a time traveler? How does he know? I know. What the hell? Who is this guy? In this book, it was revealed by an anonymous source that Charlie had been sexually abusing Marie. A family member after the book was published, Stella Lawson, would confirm that she heard from her mother, Jetty Lawson, and some of her other aunts that Fanny had suspected incest. Great. I know. (laughs) It's very depressing. This book, White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, I don't think we can add it to our bookshelf because... Like, the asking price of it is, like, $170. Oh, it's, like, one of those out-of-print ones. Yeah. So, I think it's out-of-print. But in 2006, and we can add this one to our bookshelf, in 2006, Trudy J. Smith released her book called The Meaning of Our Tears, The True Story of the Lawson Family Murders, Christmas Day, 1929. It was better titled than The Meaning of Christmas. Yes. (laughs) Very, very much so. I didn't even think about that. I I was like, where is this title going? Come on, Trudy. In Trudy's story, she had found a family friend of Fanny named Ella May. Ella May had finally come forward and was able to confirm that Fanny had confided in her that Marie was actually pregnant with (gasps) Charlie's child. Oh, Oh, that poor thing. And so you think about, like, what made Charlie snap? Well, the possibility of his secret, right, of the incest with his daughter coming out because she was pregnant with his child. No one knows for sure, though. I mean, we will never, ever truly know what made Charlie snap that day. But those were the theories that have been brought forth. Did they do an autopsy? Yes. So was she pregnant? Did they look for that? Oh, not on. They did one on Charlie, but oh, I don't know. About oh, yeah, her. we were looking for his brain. Okay, we yeah. know Charlie shot himself, but yes. Well, and John Hopkins University was the one who actually did oh his brain study, which I thought was pretty interesting because that's up in Maryland. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. in Baltimore. I'm not sure though if we were still doing a phrenology at the time, or like what it would how high quality of results you could have gotten from that year. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is it is what it is, but... Yeah. I'm surprised. I'm interested that Johns Hopkins is like, yeah, we'll do it. That is the story of the Lawson family murders of 1929. As I mentioned, Charlie Lawson was a Taurus. He was born on May 10th of 1886. So I was able to do a natal chart for him, and it's just going to be fairly brief. But so he's a Taurus sun, a Leo moon, and a... Aries, Mercury. Oh. Yeah. Ah. Tackle your battles with fire. 
Right? Your home is your home. King of your castle. I will get rid of things Oof. in a snap. Yeah. So Tauruses are very set in their ways. They are stubborn to a fault. They are known to have tempers and can be angered easily. They're also known to be extremely possessive of their belongings, which can include people. Yep. And then having a Leo for a moon, like this combination can lead to being selfish and overbearing and bossy and controlling. I think it's just like self-centeredness. Yeah. (laughs) Extremely controlling. Not well-evolved Leo personality trait. Yeah. And then you add in the Aries for Mercury, and this means quick and pointed communication, often very harshly. So altogether, I'm going to say, Charlie, you fucking suck. I think that's fair to say to Charlie. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. I think like um, what was always the most interesting thing about this case to me was that he did take them out like the day before or day whatever to buy the new clothes and to take the family picture and why would you bother i think it has to do with like wanting the same reason why he let arthur live of like wanting your like your story to be perpetuated in like a good light so before maybe he was trying to get out in front of the secret and kill everyone before it would be obvious and then still leave one kid alive and then mm-hmm. also have like, hey, look at this nice family photo. Like, we were a decent family. Don't believe the rumors. I don't know. Yeah, we were a decent <laughs> family. I just murdered all of them 12 hours later. I got bumped in the head and yeah. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I think the fact, the proximity of the murder to the taking of the photo is just like, yeah. Huh. A lot of conjecture about that was he had been planning this for a while. Yeah. And so there's, you know, a level of premeditation there. So oh, again, yeah. we don't know. What I found interesting was that they are all buried together. With him? Yeah. Ew. No. Give him like another cemetery. Not even in the same state, honestly, but no. So I also have a picture for you guys of the tombstone of the family members and he's Big and bold, right in the middle, which just really fucking bothers I me. I don't like that at Someone all. Someone should take a um, a marble Dremel out there and just like next to his name, put comma pedophile. Also comma murderer. Well, yeah. yeah. Lots of commas. Yeah, there's a ton of commas. It's a family headstone, right? But I don't think that if you are a family annihilator that you get to no. partake I, in your and family And still be headstone. head of your family in death. Like, fuck that. I really, yeah, no, yeah. that's the last like indignity. Yeah. I was really put off by that. Do you know that if Arthur was buried there when he died like 20 years later? No. Okay. He might be next to them, but he's not in he's like, the... He's like, no, no, no. I get my own grave. Thank you. Wait, is it like a big wide coffin site like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory sort of grandparents bed? Yeah. Oh, it's like, where was the graveyard scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? <laughs> no, I'm just like, you know how the grandparents are all in what bed? What dark like, version do you have, to- Sarah? <laughs> okay, that whole uh, fucking tunnel scene, terrifying. That, that scene was terrifying. when Charlie's mom sings a song in the alleyway really stuck with me my entire life. So yeah. there could have been a graveyard scene in there, and it was like one of the least traumatic. It was one of the least traumatic scenes from that movie. It's a repressed memory. <laughs> That's true. It's, yeah, it's probably one of those huge family plots. I'm surprised. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I guess it depends. I feel like some cemeteries, especially Catholic ones, back in the day at least, you couldn't get buried if you committed, if you died by suicide. But like, hey, let's throw a murderer in here. 
no right no big deal with the people he murdered yeah it just it bothered me yeah i don't like that at all tis what it is i guess Anywho, that is what I have, and I'm actually glad that I went first because that's super fucking depressing. I'm also glad you went first, Meredith, because um, my story is going to have a lot of the same points to hit. So uh, you just kind of open the door to the hillbilly from hell. Slightly more recent. Okay. So I didn't do a bunch of astrology just because I wanted this to be a shorty, but... Ronald Gene Simmons, we're going to call him Gene, he's a cancer. And I think my OG assumption about cancers being the bulk of our murderers is standing up. They have so (laughs) many goddamn stupid feelings. So many feelings. So Gene, cancer, was born July 15th, 1940 in Chicago, Illinois. I could have done a birth chart because I actually had his place of birth too, but I didn't. It's already four pages, so let's go. (laughs) He didn't even start out very well. His younger brother would describe him as a bully and a tyrant. So even as a child, he was kind of a piece of shit. Okay. Uh, When he was 17, he dropped out of school and joined the U.S. Navy. And he was stationed at the Naval Station in Bremerton in Washington State. (gasps) Yeah. That's where uh, Wesley Allen Dodd was stationed. Uh Banger. Yeah. Guys, it's not a great place to be. Yikes. And at a a USO event, which I, do they still even do those? I don't know. Maybe. But he met Bersabe Rebecca Ulibari, who went by Becky. Okay. Thankfully. That's easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have no idea. Bersabe, I have no idea, like, what nationality that name is, like, where that one came from at all. But they would marry on July 9th, 1960. Uh, It wasn't a fairy tale love story for Becky. Gene completely controlled the household, even when he was away, which he was because he was in the Navy. Uh, He set very strict schedules for meals, laundry, and cleaning. He controlled the finances and would give Becky a small allowance, which is not Hmm. something you can actually give a partner, I don't think. A wife or a husband doesn't get an allowance. And she wasn't even allowed to drive, which happens a lot and is really controlling. Yeah. But I'm also like... He's not even here half the time. I think Becky needs to drive to, like, take care of her family. Go to the grocery store. Right? With the limited amount of money he gave her. Take the kids to school. Yeah, but Becky was young and impressionable when she met Jean, which worked perfectly for Jean because he could mold her into a meek and accommodating dependent wife. It sounds like he's stuck in the 50s. Yeah. And she seemed a little brainwashed by it too she referred to him as my gene in her diaries and she would sometimes complain about how strict he is but she seemed to believe that he knew best so oh that's depressing so gene stayed in the navy for five years uh lived a civilian life for two years and then joined the u.s air force and i don't know that much about the military but is it normal to bounce around the branches or do you just choose uh, one? It depends on what your job is. Yeah. He was just guy in the military. <laughs> but if he had a specialty in a certain trade, I'm not there sure might be... he did per se. But during his 20-year military career, he was awarded a Bronze Star, uh, the Republic of Vietnam Gallant- Gallantry Cross, and 
the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Markmanship. Oh, was he a sniper? Didn't say. Hmm. I think if he was a sniper, it probably would have said. I just kind of feel like the Air Force Ribbon is like in boot camp where you're like, you got 90 out of 100 on the target or something. I don't actually know. A participation trophy? Maybe a little (laughs) bit. Okay, well, any military listeners, if you know what that means, or if it's, like, an actual, like, significant honor, let us know. I feel like if he would have been, like, a sniper somewhere, it would have said that. It just sounds like he was guy in military for 20 years. Okay. And he retired with the rank of Master Sergeant. So once again, military listeners, I don't know if that's good or not. And I'm going to just try to avoid doing any crimes that have a deep military background from now on. (laughs) Try not to step on toes, but also clueless. Is that good or not? I'm not, I just don't know. Like, did he actually progress very far in the ranks or not? Is what I can't actually figure out. So a master sergeant or an MSG is the eighth enlisted grade, so an E8, ranking above the sergeant first class and below the sergeant major command, sergeant major, sergeant major of the army and equal in grade, but not authority to a first sergeant, if that makes sense. I do recall that I did probably read that sentence and I was still like, I don't know what that means. How about this one? Is Master Sergeant a high rank? There you go. Because I'm like, did he get promoted? Like, or did he just kind of like roll around? Sergeant <laughs> Majors are non-commissioned officers of the United States Army. So he was in the Air Force, you said? Uh, yeah, this was the Air Force and he retired and it was a Master Sergeant. The rank of Chief Master Sergeant is the highest Air Force enlisted rank. Okay. So not an officer. No, I don't think so. Okay. Whatever, Gene. Anywho, by this time, he retired with whatever that means. And at this point, the Simmons family had seven kids, seven kids, like the Lawson family. Wow. And they had moved to Cloudcroft, New Mexico, where Gene didn't make a good impression on his neighbors, one of whom told a reporter, quote, he had a beer in his hand all the time. And he had, he had one little room he would stay in all the time. It was dark and seemed spooky, and it stunk. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, That's God, gross. just like, it's dark, dank. Man stink. Man stink, like beer sweat, like all of that. Yeah. Who knows what else? We don't need to go. That's what part of the man stink, I think. The mustiness. Oh. But you can't be mad at him for always having a beer in his No, hand. that part I was like. What? Hey. I had a beard in my head while I was reading that <laughs> article. she holds it up but, to uh, the camera, yeah. <laughs> but I don't have one little room I would stay in. I don't think it smells bad in here. And not surprisingly, he controlled his children just as he controlled his wife. And so the children were never allowed to attend school functions. Uh, their friends were never allowed to spend the night at the Simmons house. And the children were never allowed to spend the night away from home. Interesting. Yeah. So, while living in Cloudcroft, Becky, the wife, for their last child, Rebecca Lynn, in 1977, sounds like none of her pregnancies had been easy, and all of her children had been born underweight, although that might have also been due to the strict control that Jean had over to her, and it sounded like he didn't actually give her enough money to get food for the whole family, like, at a normal, what a regular human being needs. And if they barely have enough money for, like, the essential food products, right, then she's probably not getting, like, prenatal vitamins or anything like that. 
And she seems like a nice woman, so she was probably, like, sacrificing for her kids, too. Like, giving them the brunt of the, and taking what was left and whatnot. I will say that as a mom, that's one of the hardest things you do is when you've got, like, this really tasty treat that you've been looking forward to all day. And then your kid looks at you with their big, beautiful yeah. eyes and they're like, can I have that? And you're like, yeah. That's when you say, let's split it. <laughs> I'll share. <laughs> Sharing is caring. When Wobbles looks at me with his big, beautiful eyes, I just push him off the table. <laughs> you can't do that with your children. I know. That's why I still cat-only family. <laughs> and the family wasn't actually poor. It was just Jean controlled the money very tightly. Yeah. She had like a $2 a week budget to feed eight people yeah. herself and then their seven kids. All right. In any case, her doctor told her that if she ever got pregnant again... It would probably kill her, and he advised her to get a tubal ligation. So here's a nice, fun barf. It's the patriarchy moment. Because uh, since it was 1977, she needed to get her husband's consent before she could have the no. procedure. Seriously? Ew. Like, no, wife, I want you to bear a few more before I'm done with you. Ew. Uh, I'm going to say... They don't hand them out very easily now, but I didn't have to get... But at least you don't need a man to sign off A man did not have to sign off for me when I got my mine. I just had to have aged long enough for them to think I wouldn't change my mind. What year was it that women could open their own bank accounts? I don't know. Yeah. You should Google that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm like, rights, what are they? When did that happen? Gene wanted a couple more pushed outs. He did not consent until... Becky was literally begging for his permission and kind of her life, and he never quite forgave her for, quote, putting her own life over his wishes. Ugh. I'm really disgusted by this dude. It's so gross. And some sources say that he never had sex with her again after the procedure, which dodged a bullet, I would say. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. then that bullet hit someone even more more vulnerable oh no so around 1978 he started molesting his 15 year old daughter sheila and then in 1981 sheila was pregnant oh no and gene told the family this this is a weird story she dropped sheila off at her prom then went home and had a family meeting told the family that sheila was pregnant but wouldn't talk about who the father was and it was basically don't worry about it Simply accept this child into the flock like one of the family, and we're not going to talk about it. For however long it survives. Yeah. It's got a couple years. It's unclear how word got out, but eventually the Otero County Office of Social Services found out about it. And when they questioned Sheila, she admitted that her father was also the father of her child. No. I have the bank account thing uh, answered. So women were given the right to have a bank account in the 60s, but banks and financial institutions basically wouldn't allow them to open them. And so it wasn't until 1974 Equal Credit Opportunity Act that it actually resulted in banks like needing to allow them to open them, basically. And I'm also not sure if Becky ever had a job of her own either. So she was She couldn't even like put savings no, away. No, she had no money to put in it. Yeah. And there was an Etsy back then, so it's not like she could even, oh, like, yeah. home craft and... Crochet and... Yeah. Yeah, she had seven children to raise. She was kind of busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Sheila admitted about to the incest, and the family was ordered to undergo family counseling. 
Question, 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 question mark. I don't like that. Mm -mm. And Jean did not have the self-awareness to benefit from talk therapy and remained unashamed, telling the therapist that he had done it for Sheila's own good to, quote, protect and teach her. Uh, So I think charges were eventually filed against Jean, but before anything could happen, the Simmons family quickly moved out of the state, and that was enough for New Mexico. And although Jean was unashamed of his actions, he was not pleased with his daughter, and in a letter he wrote to her, said, quote, You have destroyed me, and you have destroyed my trust in you. That's such bullshit. It's such bullshit. Ugh. I will see you in hell. Fuck off. Fuck <laughs> off. And in what does sound like a form of hell to me, the Simmons next home was a rural isolated plot in Dover, Arkansas, which Jean christened Mockingbird Hill, very la-ti-da, for uh, a home that consisted of two mobile homes jury-rigged together. Oh no. Duct tape. It sounds like a duct tape job. There's no phone, and the only indoor plumbing was connected to a shower. No one wants to be naked in front of daddy. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah, at least they had that one small private area. Mm-hmm. Uh, water for cleaning and cooking was caught in buckets lined up underneath the roof's eaves. Ew. There was a subpar outhouse thrown together that would overflow during the heavy rain season. Oh. Yuck. Flooding. Like a cesspool for reals. Yeah. Jean also started collecting junk for various projects. So imagine a lawn strewn with cinder blocks, car parts, and other mechanical junk. But outsiders couldn't see very much of it as most of the property was surrounded by a 10-foot fence and posted with no trespassing signs. Not that anyone was probably knocking down the doors to get in. It doesn't sound great. No. This is for Meredith. Dover, Arkansas. I almost said Alaska. It's a very small town. How small? 1.8 miles in size, a total of 1,329 people. Small. Very small. Is what we'll say here. Uh, There even was an article written that tried to understand how nobody in this small town noticed that the Simmons family patriarch was completely falling apart. But the school-aged children flew under the radar, didn't draw very much attention to themselves, and were perfectly average, and so neither the teachers nor their fellow classmates really seemed to know very much about them at all, but definitely didn't think anything bad was happening either. Sure. At this point, the two oldest boys, Little Jean and Billy, moved out, married, and started families of their own. Jean released his hold enough for Sheila to start taking classes at a business school in Little Rock, but he soon regretted that when (laughs) Sheila started dating a classmate named Dennis McNulty. Despite her father's pleas and displeasure, Sheila moved out and married Dennis. She's like, yeah, no, fuck you. <laughs> Found a man that <laughs> yeah, treats me right. I don't. Yeah, you and your goddamn pleas, get out of here. She also told Dennis the truth about the true father of her daughter, Sylvia Gale, and Dennis mm-hmm. promised to legally adopt her. Stand up, dude. Dennis yeah. sounds like a really good guy. Unlike Jean, who worked a number of low-paying jobs but could not keep them, He worked as a clerk at a law firm, but was fired because he wouldn't stop sexually harassing a co-worker, uh, receptionist Kathy Kendrick. He also worked for Woodline Motor Freight as an accounts receivable clerk, but was fired from there for the same sort of reason. Yeah. Yeah, you know, habits. Mm Mm-hmm. His last job was as a clerk at a Sinclair Mini Mart, but he had quit that job for unknown reasons on December 18th. 
1987. They made him? <laughs> yeah, he quit, but he was yeah. going to be fired. Yeah, who knows? So on December 22nd, so four days later, as planned, little Jean, Big Jean's oldest son, arrived with his three-year-old daughter, Barbara, to spend the holidays at Mockingbird Hill. They barely had time to say hello before Big Jean bludgeoned little Jean with a metal pipe before finishing oh. this job with a 22 caliber pistol, mm. which he had picked up at Walmart that very morning. Walmart. Walmart. Started in Arkansas, right? I think so. Hmm. Becky, Big Jean's wife, is freaking out and cradling her granddaughter, but she's also shot and killed. Jesus. And Barbara, the three-year-old grandchild, is then strangled to death. Oh, my God. So Jean takes the three bodies, dumps them in a large pit that he had had his children dig earlier, and then he waits patiently for his four school-age children to come home from school. Uh, he greets them and tells them that he has a Christmas surprise for each of them. And then he takes each of them, one by one, into the house where he strangles them and then holds their heads underwater in a rain barrel to make sure they were dead. Jesus. So Loretta, 17, Eddie, 14, and Marianne, 11, and Rebecca, 8, all die in this manner and were placed in the pit with the other three dead bodies. He poured kerosene over the bodies because he thought that the kerosene would keep animals away. And then he covered the pit with dirt and barbed wire and probably other junk he had in his yard. Sure. Uh, he somehow kept himself occupied for the next four days as the rest of his family wasn't planning to come over to the house until the day after Christmas. So Billy Simmons, 22, his wife Renata, 21, and their son Trey, who's 20 months old, were the first to arrive. So following his pattern, Jean shot the adults and strangled the child. Oh, that's awful. Poor things. <sighs> yeah, we ain't done. So the second family unit to arrive was Sheila, who was 24 now, her husband Dennis, 33, her incestuous child, Sylvia Gale, who was six now, and then the child that she had had with Dennis named Michael, who was 21 months old. Hmm. Sheila and Dennis were also shot, and Sylvia and Michael were strangled. The bodies from this day were treated with slightly more respect and were laid out in a line in the living room, and Jean covered their bodies with coats, except for Sheila, whom he... Kind of put more in a present presentation type of style and covered Ew. her with a nice tablecloth, like the spot of place of honor. Which is just so bizarre. It's so gross. <laughs> Ugh. Despite killing his entire family at this point, later that day, Jean drove to the nearby town of Russellville, where he picked up some pre-ordered Christmas gifts that had not arrived on time. Why? <laughs> I don't know. For himself? Yeah, he ordered something for himself. He then stopped at a bar, had a couple drinks, went back home, and spent the rest of the weekend watching TV and drinking beer with the corpses of his family in the same room. Oh my god. Ugh. Festive. Yuck. So Gene had run out of family members, but he wasn't quite finished. Oh god. Two days later, on the morning of December 28th, Gene drove back to Russellville. His first stop was the law office where he previously worked, and he walked in, shot, and killed Kathy Kendrick, who was the target of his prior sexual harassment and the quote-unquote reason that he had been fired from that position. He then moved to the 
on to the Taylor Oil Company, where he shot and killed J.D. Chafin, 33, and wounded Russell Taylor, who was the owner. The Taylor Oil Company owned the Sinclair Mini Mart, where Gene had just quit his job a few days earlier. And then speaking of the Mini Mart, that was Gene's next stop, where he wounded two employees on duty, Roberta Woolery and David Saylor. And his last stop was the Woodline Motor Freight Company, where he wounded his former supervisor, Joyce Butts. Jane then led worker Vicki Jackson at gunpoint to the main office, where he told her to call the police, saying, quote, I've come to do what I wanted to do. It's all over now. I've gotten everybody who wanted to hurt me. Like the tiny children that he strangled? Yeah, yeah. Like the 20-month-old one oh really God. Had a vendetta out against his grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Gene sat and chatted with Vicky until the police showed up and he peacefully surrendered. Could you imagine what that conversation oh my God. was like? Vicky, he probably saw the gun on her too and just like, how's your Christmas? <laughs> what did Not you and your so family great. get up to? Yeah, I know. Just like, Bleh. police cannot get here fast enough. I think it's a small town. Yeah. Uh, Gene was charged with 16 counts of murder and had two separate trials. The first was for the murders of Kathy Kendrick and J.D. Chafin, and the second trial was for the murder of all of his family members. At the second trial, Gene caused a scene in the courtroom when the prosecutor presented a note written by Gene to Sheila, where Gene professed his love for her. Gross. Gene was able to leap out of his seat and punch the prosecutor in the face before he was subdued as he tried oh to God. grab the handgun from a deputy's holster. <sighs> he was found guilty. Thankfully. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, can we not have to look at this guy anymore? <laughs> yeah. Do we even have to do the sentencing phase? Yeah. Dig a pit. <laughs> Throw him in it. <laughs> Barbed wire. Mm-hmm. Kerosene. He was found guilty and sentenced to death by lethal injection, plus 147 years, and graced the courtroom with his presence one final time, where he refused his right to appeal, saying, quote, In my particular case, anything short of death would be cruel and unusual punishment. End quote. Which he deserves. And yeah. yeah, now that I think about that, it might have been better to have him sit with it until he died when he was like 90. Well, you said that he got, what, a hundred and some odd years plus the death penalty, so why couldn't they let him live out a hundred of those years? I mean, even like 60 of those years and then do the death penalty. His Arkansas and 90s, I think they were a little syringe happy. Oh. But it's one of those things like, oh, we're going to give the guy what he wants? Weird. Mm-hmm. Gene spent his short time on death row separated from all the other prisoners because his life was being threatened constantly. As it should have. Yes, but... Isn't a prison cell an upgrade from what he's currently living, though? Because, like, he's got a wooden toilet. It has a toilet. toilet. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, stone instead of it being, like, fiberboard or whatever it is in a trailer. The water's probably cleaner than what comes off the roof. Yeah. Ugh. Mm. The other prisoners believe that Gene was damaging their own chances of beating their death sentences because he was refusing to appeal his own. Uh, Gene's execution warrant was signed by good old Bill Clinton, and he was executed on June 25th, 1990. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. (laughs) But you did. Sorry. 
This was the quickest sentence to execution time since the death penalty had been reinstated in 1976, although I wasn't able to find if anyone had a shorter one since that time, but I'm going to go with probably not. I can only hope that his lethal injection was one of the potentially painful ones that was executed poorly. Yeah, like the dude back in October. Like one of those like 45 minute ones. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was no information. I didn't see anything about how the execution went. But he's uh, good and dead now. Thank you. Yep. But uh, rather have the 16 people back. Yeah. And then to tie this back to an earlier episode, specifically my Dorothea Puente episode. Puente! Puente! The extreme metal band Macabre (laughs) have also written a song about Ronald Gene Simmons called Holidays of Horror. And you can find this on their album entitled Gloom. Gloom. (laughs) It's very gloomy. And it came out in 1989, and I'm going to give Macabre some, uh, a little tiny bit of props for being some OG true crime nerds and putting the research into some very obscure cases back when we didn't have the internet. Yeah, wow. Went to the library a whole lot. Nerds. I guess. They were looking at like, the <laughs> microfiche. <laughs> and that is Gene Simmons, not the Gene Simmons. Wah, wah. I think that was maybe more depressing than my family annihilator. There were more? Because there was like double the victims. Jesus. Yeah. And like she had the kid, which. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, only that's... to be murdered six years later. Yeah. It's just awful. And yeah, it was like extended, like daughters in law and grand, like everybody. Yeah, that's just fucking terrible. His markmanship was 100% with his family, but on December 28th, when he went on the rampage around town, he luckily only wounded most of the people that he tried to kill. That was probably intentional, though. It's hard to say, although it was probably a less controlled environment as well. They were in his little um, mobile home for the first killings, the other one out in the open, maybe, but... Yeah. Well, thank you, Hannah. Yeah. I don't know why we did this as a gift, but... There you go. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back up again. I don't, this one's Are you? Kill, kill count isn't quite as deep as jeans. Okay. But my Christmas story is also a hometown. Okay. So meet Bruce Jeffrey Pardo. He was born wanna. on March 23rd in 1963. So he's, um, is that making him an Aries? He's an Aries. Oh, we haven't had that many Aries, I don't think. Yeah. Which is surprising. They're so, but they like, they get it out in like arguments. Verbally. They're very fiery and they move on. Well. Except this one. Or they hold grudges like my mom. Mm. Hi, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so Bruce Pardo in 2004 met not the love of his life, but a woman, uh, Sylvia Ortega in 2004. And they were married on January 29th, 2006. So not not too long, but enough. They're both like older in age. Sylvia already had three children from previous relationships, a prior marriage and all of that. I want to believe though in like love after 50. And we keep getting all these stories where everyone gets murdered. So he was 43, I believe, when they met, but and 45 when all of this went down. Not uh, after 50, but, you know, uh, getting there. Horseshoes <laughs> and hand grenades. Sorry, under 50 listeners. 
So they, they got married. They moved into a home that Bruce already owned in Montrose, which is about 15 miles north of Los Angeles. Like I said, Sylvia had children from her previous relationships, one of which was a five-year-old daughter who she appeared to have full custody of. Sylvia didn't really bring a whole lot to the relationship, monetarily speaking, because she only earned around 30000 a year from and worked at a flower company in El Monte. Bruce, That's on the other hand- That's how much we make. <laughs> I, I know, but like, <laughs> she's got fine. three kids. <laughs> Oh, it's not as fine, actually. Yeah, it's not great. She's a single mom with full custody of one and partial custody of the other two, it sounds like. Works at a flower company. I was going to say, follow your bliss, but maybe not as much when you have three kids to take care of. Yeah. Um, Bruce, on the other hand, made over 120000 each year as an electrical engineer. Okay. So they got married. They're bringing in enough to be able to put, around, uh, put into a nest egg. They had an Akita, um, which is one of those Spitzbreed <gasps> dogs, Named uh-huh. Saki. Oh, that's cute. Things seemed to be kind of okay for a, at least a little while. They um, started to build that nest egg up to around 80000 and seemed to be okay, pretty secure financially. But quickly after, maybe like within the year actually of, of them getting married, things start to fall apart. Hmm. By December 2007, a bit less than two years into the marriage, Sylvia was sleeping in the spare bedroom and spending weekends with her parents, according to court papers. Bruce refused to open a joint account with her. Um, so kept finances separate. Okay. We have looked this up. She could have had her own she bank account. She could have. Yeah. She mm-hmm. could not have put that much money in it. No. Bruce also expected her to take care of her own three children with her own finances, which is kind of reasonable. Like, they're not his kids, but it's also like, dude, she only makes 30 grand and you make a lot more than you that. You make like four times as much as she does. Yeah. Yeah. It's awkward. I, I don't know. I don't want to be it's, on Bruce's. It's things that should definitely have been discussed before the marriage. Yes. Either way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So two months later, she told him that she wanted a divorce. She filed court documents asking for the attorney's fees and over $3,000 in monthly spousal support. She claimed that her husband had drawn down their 80 grand nest egg to only $17,000 um, in two months and was transferring these funds into a private account. She stated, quote, the situation has become untenable and continuing the marriage was not an option, end quote. Sounds fair. I was like, yeah, just good divorce, I always yep. say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In July 2008, Bruce lost his job and soon was drowning in debt while scrambling to find work. He begged the court to grant him spousal support until he could find employment. Um, he complained in a, fi- in a filing that he had monthly expenses of $8,900 and ran a monthly deficit of $2,678. Probably should cut some of those expenses, my dude. Yeah, bro. Figure it out. <laughs> like, you're an engineer. Aren't you supposed to be good at numbers? Try some fucking top ramen. Uh, yeah, what can <laughs> that even be? Eight? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had $31,000 in credit card debt. I feel so much better about my credit card debt right now. Oh, yeah. A 2700 monthly mortgage payment, which doesn't – doesn't that go into your expenses too? Like having a it place – It should. It should be, right? your mortgage. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like know. rent. So basically he's got like uh, something like 12000 going out each month that he cannot Jesus. afford. Jesus. Yeah. All right. What's her name's uh, 30000 a year? It's looking pretty cush now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How is she supposed to support him financially when she only makes 30000 It's a sinking 30, ship. Yeah. And yeah. had they not already gotten divorced? So they were starting to file, basically, at this point. Oh, okay. So he whined that he hadn't been giving, been given a severance package from his work and that he was unable to receive unemployment. Not the court's problem. 
And I also don't know how that applies. It's just that like, well, I didn't get any help once they, you know, fired me. And so now I wasn't expecting this expense to pile up so quickly. It was just whining, basically. It's a lot of whining. You can can get multiple jobs, Bruce. (laughs) You can deliver pizzas. You can work at the fucking Walmart. The gig (laughs) economy is opening up. Lots of options. Yep. So the court instead ordered Bruce to pay Sylvia $1,700 a month, actually $1,785, in spousal support, plus $3,500 for the past payments that she was owed by the time that the divorce was finalized. I gotta time out a second. I don't exactly understand spousal support. I don't understand why she deserves any money. I don't know. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna, I'll explain it to the best of my She got it. So because they were married and because he was the breadwinner for such a long time. Not that long. But still, like they over were married, almost two years, they take like that financial difference into their calculation. So there's like a calculation that goes into it. It's like a like an actual. Okay, but then how long would he be expected to pay her spousal support till she finds another spouse? What? No, 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 oh. no. It would be a certain set of time. So like in Washington State, and I know this for other reasons. <laughs> You haven't been researching. Mm-hmm. No, uh, my mom has a lot of, of her coworkers that have gotten divorced. So you he- I hear these stories. So, <laughs> oh, okay. Anyways, so like the longer you're married, the longer okay. the spousal support payment would be applicable for you. In some cases, like if you've been married for like 30, 40 years, that payment could become a like till you die payment. Well, now I'm starting to see why you murder your divorce scene wife, but, um... <laughs> right? You're like, I'm done paying you. I'm done. We're not in a relationship anymore. Ah, weird. This has to be a tie back to when women couldn't have their own bank accounts. Sure. But there's, like, there's... It's, like, an actual, like, mathematical equation, and they factor in all these different components. So it's going to be how different their pay was hmm The discrepancy there, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, how long they were married. And so there's a lot of factors that go into this mathematical equation, but that's how they figure it out. Wow. I'm going to, I don't know, show my libertarian side. I don't like it. I, like, we get a divorce. If we have kids together, you need to support the child because it's genetically half yours. But other than that, we need a clean break. I never want to talk to you again. Even if you were going to give me money. And it goes the other way, too, I assume, that, like, if the wife makes more money than she has to give the husband. God, mm-hmm, never get mm-hmm. married. Just common lie. <laughs> what is the saying? Don't marry anyone that you wouldn't want a divorce. Well, I didn't know that when I got a divorce, but. Uh. But you consider like like celebrities and right that have like prenup huge income. So they're I mean, they're paying like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in the spousal support, child support. So where like, you know, maybe an average family would be paying a thousand to two thousand dollars a month for maybe spousal support and child support, like a celebrity might be paying fifty thousand dollars a month. Oh my God. I would assume though like maybe a prenup in place would Mm -hmm. solve that and i've just realized that i am an asshole and that if the spouse stopped working to take care of a family and then they get a divorce that gap in the employment and whatnot is really hard to overcome sometimes so i can see why 
you might. But if everyone has a job, get out of here. Don't <laughs> yeah. call me. Patrick. Divorce is complicated. So like you said, don't marry someone you wouldn't divorce. Mm-hmm. Not that you're <laughs> planning on it, but like it, it goes into the character of the person. And, like, mm-hmm. how miserable your life could potentially be after the fact if things do go Oh, well, you don't always know it until you're about to get a divorce. Because people are, they lie. They do. They yeah, pretend. to know them. You never actually know. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry you never Christmas. actually know any other person in this world. And um, they're going to take not even your yourself. money. Oh, God, not even myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. So Bruce is paying seventeen eighty five a month. Mm-hmm. Plus three thousand five hundred seventy for back payment. When the divorce was settled, the court waived those payments, and Bruce got the house. But he also had to pay his wife ten thousand dollars, return her valuable diamond wedding ring, and give her custody of the dog. Oh, time out here too. You don't get to keep the ring. No. Okay. What? You give the you give the ring back. Yeah. Not to her though. She the diamond ring is what's his name? David. Bruce. Bruce. It's he bought it. He you bought give, it. You give it back to him. He can pawn it. It was part of the agreement for... But it's also, like, it's also kind of considered a gift. I don't care. Yeah, it's weird. I like- I would say the circumstance would be different probably in different cases. But in this one, it sounded like he got off the hook for those other payments. So maybe that was just something that was worth something. And he got mm-hmm. the house. He already owned the house. He probably already owned it. But, like, it... He owned a- it and he wanted to not do joint finances probably for this reason... All right, so she gets the dog. She gets the dog. In a court declaration, Bruce complained that Sylvia was living with her parents, not paying rent, doesn't have a whole lot of expenses, and had spent lavishly on a new luxury car, gambling trips to Vegas with her friends, meals at fancy restaurants, massages, golf lessons. Sylvia was basically just living it up and enjoying her single life again. But do we know that for sure, though? I mean, she was definitely, she had the car and she was enjoying doing things again. Was it a Lamborghini? No, it was It was probably like a, a nice Honda. I mean, it might have been an Acura. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably still like, not. she's not getting that much money from Bruce. No, but she was able to get a new car and like take care of herself. And like that was too much because he's still wallowing in debt and trying to fix sure. his life after all of this. So, so he's bitter. He's bitter. She's fault. living it up on his dime, and she doesn't make enough money to be able to do that on her own, so how dare she kind of attitude. I'm going to say she's just living. Yeah, well, yeah. Although, wait, no, I'm on Bruce's side again. I if, don't know. Do you go on gambling trips to Vegas a whole lot? I mean, I don't know. That just sounds like she's definitely... If she's got three kids, though, right. she's paying a substantial amount of, like, you know, like, child care or something. Yeah. Even if her parents are helping her out, she there's still a lot of money she's spending on that. So if the girl wants to live it up, she just got a divorce, she wants to go to Vegas, have a good time. She's not young, so the, the two of the kids, other than the five-year-old, could be old and grown uh, and taking care maybe. of themselves, too, though. Sure. Okay. Because they were similar in age. I'm not mad at her. I'll just say that. I'm not mad. He's mad. I'd like if he was giving her like five thousand dollars a month or something, then I could see her pampering the shit out of herself. But like, what you seventeen hundred is just like rent in California. I think he's like, I think his rationale was that she's living at her parents' house. Why does she need more money when she doesn't even really need it? Because she's she saving needs, up to put a right. down payment on something or to sure. do first, last, and damage. He wasn't thinking oh, yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah, because he's bitter as fuck. I can tell. Mm-hmm. On December 22nd, he told his attorney that he was still trying to come up with the money. 
Um, And becoming increasingly frustrated that the world had failed him, Bruce hatched a plan. He wanted to get even with his ex and then some. So on Christmas Eve, Sylvia and a lot of her family members and friends are having this Christmas Eve party at her parents' house in Covina, California. Hey! My hometown. Hometown. At approximately 11.30 p.m., Bruce was dressed in a Santa Claus suit and knocked... He knocked on the door of his former in-law's house, which was occupied by about 25 people at the time. Jesus fucking Christ. In his hands, he held a sinister Christmas present, all wrapped up with a shiny bow. A bomb? No. A shotgun. (laughs) I'm just going back to that fire emoji you sent us earlier today. A Molotov cocktail. It was a gift-wrapped package containing a rolling air compressor converted to deliver high-octane gasoline. (gasps) Oh! He was an engineer. He made a flamethrower. Holy shit. And there were also at least four 9mm semi-automatic handguns. Jesus. All on him? Yeah, he's carrying these boxes that contain those oh. those things. Merry fucking Christmas. Just imagine, have you ever been at a party where it just turns immediately and all of a sudden everything crashes down back to reality and you're just like, oh fuck, I have to be sober like right now. and Like, like oh my God. Luckily, I've never been in one of those. <laughs> I haven't been in one of these where, like, someone brought a flamethrower, but I was at a party where someone's dog bit another person in the face. And, Uh-oh. And that was a, a big-ass downer. Yeah. I was at a party where the police were called, so you had to, like, leave. But that's that's adrenaline running out, you know? Like, yeah. When the when you're in a kitchen, like, drinking on the counter, and all of a sudden, like, this girl's bleeding oh, yeah. from the face, and we're all just like, oh, shit, it's one in the morning, and we got to sober up, so I wanted to get her to the hospital. Like, it was a whole thing. <sighs> anyway... I'm thinking about the party guest, to be honest here, but... Yeah, so there's 25 people there. He knocks on the door. It's it's Santa and little eight-year-old Katrina, who is Sylvia's niece, ran to greet him. And he took this moment in the entryway to unwrap his first gift and took out one of his handguns and shot her in the face. Oh, my (gasps) God. He then opened fire at the rest of the now fleeing party goers. Evidence suggests that he may have stood over and pointedly executed at point blank like some of the victims um, using the other handguns that he was carrying. Oh, my God. After he ran out of ammo, he unwrapped the second gift containing the homemade flamethrower and used it to spray racing fuel gasoline to ignite the home. He put on his street clothes as best he could once he was done. Um, Some of the synthetic fabric from the Santa suit had melted onto his skin. Ha! Fuck Mm. you. Trace evidence, bitch. (laughs) He drove a Dodge Caliber rental car back to his brother's house in Silmar, which was approximately 30 miles away from the crime scene, where he was later found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot God wound. God damn, that fucking asshole. Yeah. Strapped to his body was $17,000, everything that was left, that was wrapped in cling wrap around his torso and legs, all almost sweaty. as if to make him look fatter oh. in the Santa suit, is, is how I'm in- interpreting this. I'm just imagining how, like, damp it is. So he couldn't come up with the money, but he had $17,000 that he used to pad his fucking Santa suit? That was the remainder of the nest egg that he had left. Oh. I think that's like all that he had probably left to his name. That's still a decent amount of money, my dude. You could get a job in the meantime. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's more money than I have in... I used to have like three months saved up, or is it six? Whatever it is, I don't have it, but like he has enough to survive for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Well, not with his 12000 a month expenditures. Well, you have to cut. I think you're supposed to have a year. Oh, it's gotten longer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not really lovable anymore. The rental car 
that he had used was parked around the corner from his brother's house and had been rigged with a pipe bomb tangled up with the remains of the Santa suit. Oh! So he wants to take out first responders, too, then. Or, like, police officers. Someone else, yeah. Yeah. Was his brother home? No, his brother wasn't home. That's good. Luckily, the authorities recognized that there was a device there before it detonated and a bomb squad was called. They actually just fired an incendiary device into the rental vehicle, which destroyed the pipe bomb and then burned the vehicle down. I'm imagining this in a suburban neighborhood like the one I live in. Yeah, they cleared everyone out of the area and then did this and yeah. Okay, at Mm -hmm. least they cleared them out, but you're just like at home. There's a car on Chilling, all of a sudden you hear like a bomb explode in the suburbs? Yeah. Well, this isn't the first time Kavina's had a weird instance going on. fire. Oh, no. Yeah. So he actually killed nine of the Ortega family members that night. His oh ex-wife, God. Sylvia, who is 43, Sylvia's mother, Alicia, who is 70, and her father, Joseph, who is 80, mm. her brother, Charles, and his wife, Sherry Lynn, her brother, James, and his wife, Teresa, and then her sister, Alicia, and Alicia's son, Michael, who is only 17. Miraculously, Katrina survived, despite being shot in the face at close range. God! Two other partygoers were injured, a 16-year-old girl who was shot in the back as she fled, and then a 20-year-old woman who broke her ankle fleeing from the fire out the second floor window. That probably would have been me. <laughs> Hannah, always breaking her ankle. <laughs> I break my ankle while I sprain them a lot, so they weak. One of the survivors who was able to flee to a neighbor's house was the one to call 911, and the roaring fire taking over the house took over an hour and a half to be able to extinguish. Damn. And because it burnt for so long, that meant that the victims reported, the nine victims that I just talked about, weren't actually immediately able to be identified, but were eventually identified with dental records. Oh my god. I'm going to hope that they were already dead before the house was incinerated. I don't need to hear a Nope. Okay. I mean, it's kind of a mix. Some of them were executed before the fire was set, and some of them were still in the process of dying. But maybe they had, yeah. Smoke inhalation, but... I think their bodies were so far gone that they wouldn't have been able to tell smoke inhalation anyway. Right. Okay. Bruce's mother, Nancy Windsor, told the LA Times that she wanted the 17000 and any remaining money in her son's estate to be placed into a fund for the three children of her former daughter-in-law. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking you were going to say, like, she wanted she it for herself. No, be like, no. She raised a, a monster, monster, but wasn't one I was one like, herself. holy fucking shit. It's like uh, the story I told two weeks ago where, like, the mom's like, we're going to reopen the restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> nah. Jesus. Okay. And then to, to end on a much, much lighter note. <laughs> yes. Please. I have a, a cuter... Silly Christmas true crime story. Okay. Intruder decorates home for Christmas. <gasps> what? That's so sweet. But it not was a pretty creepy un- as fuck, but... <laughs> it was an, a pretty unnerving event in 2011 when a boy, who was 11 at the time, spotted a uh, 44-year-old burglar stranger in his home in Vandalia, Ohio. Jesus. Terry Trent, who was described to be high on bath salts, had broken into the home. Oh my God. God. But fortunately, didn't mean any harm. What he actually did was just put up Christmas decorations and lounge around. He lit some candles, hung a wreath on the garage door, then kicked back in the easy chair and watched some TV with the volume turned up loud. Tell me he was watching How the Grinch Stole Christmas. No one disclosed what he was watching. It's a wonderful oh, life. Something Christmas. Yeah, I, I would hazard a guess that it was definitely Christmas themed. <laughs> <laughs> 
what the 11 year old boy saw was Trent just hanging around the house and then God. he called his mom who was actually next door at a neighbor's <gasps> oh. house at the time. Trent was described as polite and told the child, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare you. I'll just get my things and go. Oh my God. Oh. I mean, yes, please, but what? And that's that's what I have on that story. But oh like- my God. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Considering the first time I heard about bath salts was when the dude in Florida was Florida biting yep. off the other dude's face on the freeway. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they did the toxicology and that guy actually wasn't high on basalts. Oh, it wasn't? Something else. Okay. I think he was just insane. Oh. Okay. But that was like the first time like I had right, heard I know. about salts. So I'm glad that this dude opted for a more pleasant... He just wanted twinkly lights. <laughs> I just want something sparkly. Don't we all, Santa? Uh, Don't we all? And then I do have a couple of tidbits about Yule. Oh, yay. I didn't even think about that. Good idea. Here's a little bit of our our witchy shit. It's actually from December 21st through January 1st. It predates Christmas by thousands of years. It's a midwinter feast that lasts about 12 days. So kind of like the 12 days of Christmas. But Vikings decorated evergreen trees with gifts and food to encourage the forest spirits to return for spring. Okay. Mistletoe was hung in doorways to be able to ward off evil spirits. Not for kisses. (laughs) Not for kisses. Okay. Viking children would leave their winter shoes filled with hay and sweets by the hearth for Sleipnir, which is Odin's eight-legged horse that he rides, Aww. Aww. to for, for Sleipnir to be able to eat from. Oh, that's so sweet. So not stockings, but little shoes with hay. Like little clogs. <laughs> and then the Yule log was a major tradition that had to burn for the whole 12 days and letting it burn out would bring a lot of bad luck for the year to come. That's a lot of pressure. It is. It needs to be a big-ass log. Yeah. For 12 days? Yeah, it was usually like a, a fallen tree, basically, because way back then they had these great halls with a massive house. Oh, right. Okay. I was like, how does that fit inside? Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah. So like not each homestead would be responsible for the entire Yule log. It would be like the the hall. Okay. The community. Mm. Okay. Cool. But yeah, enjoy your fireplaces, people. Yeah. Hang your stockings with care. (laughs) I have a little bit of astrology for Christmas week. So on December 20th, which I think is the day that this episode will air, Mercury and Capricorn will be trying with Uranus and Taurus. Woo! Trying! Mm-hmm. And this day, you might receive some pretty exciting news, particularly when it comes to friendship. So Hmm. I don't know what the fuck that means, but... It sounds fun. Good vibes for the holidays. Yes. And then on December 21st, we do welcome the sun interest Capricorn. Hey, bitches. (laughs) Sea goat here. The winter solstice and then the shortest day of the year. And then on December 24th, so Christmas Eve, Jupiter and Aquarius will be square with Uranus and Taurus. And this aspect is going to bring us a big opportunity, but don't accept anything blindly. Mm. Might not be the best day for your secret Santa exchange. What day is this? The 24th. I would say take the opportunity to like drink some mulled wine. Okay. And then the day after Christmas, Mercury and Capricorn will be sextile with Neptune and Pisces. And again, friends, sextile is just a 60 degree aspect. Nothing sexy about it. Nope. Unless you really like angles. It's an even (laughs) number. I'm down. Okay. Okay. It's a cute it's a cutie. It's a cutie. Sextile a cutie. So 
this is the day after Christmas. This is going to be a good day to use a calm and soothing tone when communicating with other people. So just saying, let some of that Christmas energy go. Be calm. And this is also going to be a really good day to relax and unleash Hell your yeah. creativity. So, Sarah. Painting. Get your painting stuff I've out. I've got a couple commissions happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but it's supposed to be a relaxing day. Not a, oh, God. Not a stressy. Not a stressy day. Like, have some wine or cocktails and, like, do something for you. You know, unleash that creativity for you. But the day after Christmas is going to be a good day for that. Honestly, Not Boxing Day. That's a good day no. to like um after a like a the holiday, so much family and friend interaction before. Sometimes you just need to take a day, take a breath for yourself mm-hmm. a little bit, and um you know get that get some energy refreshed that way as well. Yeah. And I'm gonna do a quick PAO theme. I learned uh-huh. if Hannah rolls a joint, it's gonna be her ankle. But <laughs> I thought you would roll a joint like. It's a joint. It's a, you know, it, it would. Yeah, but not like cannabis. It would 100% be I love my ankle, it. Not, not a joint. I don't even <laughs> honestly know how to roll a joint. <laughs> I just am there to like puff puff pass if that was happening around. <laughs> all right. Well, we do wish you all a Merry Christmas. If you wanted to wish us a Merry Christmas, you can contact us on Twitter at True Crime, on Instagram at True Crime Trine, Facebook TCT Podcast. You can email us directly. We still have stickers if you want one. It's truecrimetrine at gmail.com. And then check out our website, www.truecrimetrine.com. Yay! You're welcome for this downer. Mm-hmm. Have a happier Christmas than these three stories. Oh my goodness. And I do have a couple quotes for you guys to close it out. Um, I think I'm going to go with Robert Stoughton Lind. He's an American psychologist. Sure. There are some people who want to throw their arms around you simply because it's Christmas. There are other people who want to strangle you <laughs> simply because it's Christmas. The holidays are hard. They are. Maybe it's because Christmas is like the last main holiday of the year and the holidays kind of build up towards like all this built. That's why we're seeing all these crimes by Christmas because there's been all this build up and tension and it just it all gets released. Maybe. And then my final one would be to, and this is by an unknown person, but take a deep breath and quote, don't get your tinsel in a tangle. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.